Good evening. <laughs> hmm. So tonight I'm going to talk about, in a way it's a verb, in a way it's just an attitude, and it's one of the most basic attitudes which we mostly don't have, and one of the verbs which we mostly don't do, and why we're not already saints. And it's not even taught as a technique, it's almost an understatement, but it's this hugely important business about accepting. So I want to talk about what it is and what it isn't and how important this is, how we grow this. It's really a capacity, a skill, <clears throat> attitude. Most of the time, we're so busy. The mind is so busy. You sit there looking so peaceful from the outside and inside. There's this endless stream of commentary. Some of you that may not be so, it may not be so endless now, it's maybe little gaps in between, but there's this commenting, there's describing, there's often a lot more than just describing, there's describing with a little whine in the voice or a little excitement in the voice or some judging in the voice or some kind of fed upness. We were all the time developing and living in our take on what's happening. There's of course all that's happening that we're noticing, but we're running that through our agenda making. And so we're having all these comments about what we're doing and how, how it's going and how it is for us, how we're perceiving. And we're doing it all the time. We're not just leaving life to come through our awareness and flow on by. We're hooking up with bits of it and running this story around it. I call it whining and defining, but whining with an H. Instead of whining and dining, it's whining and defining. And we're doing it so much. The thing is, because we do it so much, it's completely normal, so we don't know we're doing it. Only when we start to quieten the mind down, we begin to realize what a racket's going on in there. As we do this whining and defining, complaining sometimes and scheming sometimes, we realize that there's a secondary layer of activity on top of the perceiving, the direct perceiving of whatever's happening. It's added on top. Layers and layers, multi-layers on top of the basic moment of experience. We are not in control of the basic moment of experience, the various impacts, the sounds, the sights. But we are in charge, really, of all that we add. We do it unconsciously, mostly, involuntarily, lots of the time, often through what we've learned to do our whole lives, but that's our contribution, that's our addition, that's our responsibility, and that is what we are, first of all, learning to see that we're doing, and second of all, learning how to undo it. As we know, we always have to remind ourselves, life is a play of joys and sorrows. Life is, will always be, this is how it is on this plane, up and down ups and downs, ups and downs. And the higher the ups and the deeper the downs, the more busily we comment. More whining, more describing, more explaining, more scheming if it's an up, more clutching after it. We are busier, we're more stimulated by the stimulating ups and downs. And we love them. We want them. We're used to them. We chase them. We define ourselves by them. We meet somebody and we, we talk to them, how's it going? We don't tell them about the, oh, it's an ordinary day today. We talk about the dramas. We talk about, oh, you'll never believe what happened to me today. We zero in on it. We are stimulated by it. We love the stimulus, we think. both the stimulus and what we make of it and how we exaggerate it to make it that much more stimulating. It's like we're hungry for, we want to be entertained by it all. 
we have a fear, we have a deep fear of boredom. We have a deep fear somehow of the ordinary. Partly it's our wiring, because to survive as this species, we had to be very alert and vigilant about when the dinosaurs were coming by, or you know, somebody was a foreigner coming with a weird food. and We had to be really aware, we had to be aware of the attractive ones that we were going to be protected by or be able to mate with. We had to really have that in our programming, but we have so exaggerated it. And particularly this modern era with this speedy, speedy media, you know, literally attacking our senses with loud and big and awesome. There's a comment that um, that was as a description. It was a movie actually I got because years ago I was a midwife and taught childbirth classes, and one of the first movies I. I got to teach with was called An Unremarkable Birth. And I remember having an aversion to the title of Unremarkable because I'm, what do you mean? It's the most remarkable thing that happens. How can you call it unremarkable? But the point is, it's what's normal and natural and everyday is unremarkable. But we miss that. We go for the remarkable. We chase the remarkable. We feast on it. And what we don't do is then appreciate or even experience the unremarkable. We miss huge portions of our life because they're not shouting at us or enticing us or stimulating us, stimulating that reactivity. And so we we just discount huge, huge amounts of life, of our experiences, of sections of the planet, sections of society, I told a story recently at a retreat, actually here, the last time I was here was just a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and I told a story, which I'll only touch on briefly, of an experience I had about that and how much we do it and, and, uh, and how much we miss because of it. It was a f- um, Halloween costume party. I used to go to these regularly when I was younger. And, um, and I live in a smallish community and most of us know each other and we, so we're not pretending or hiding from each other. We're just being a different character. And I'd been a whole range of characters over the years. And this is the last time I did this and partly because of my experience. I dressed up in the most ordinary outfit imaginable for me. It was just not a recognizably interesting character. And for 45 minutes, I was near the entrance and people would arrive. You know, it's November where I live. It was raining. They'd take a few moments to get their, their look together and then they'd scan the crowd. And then they'd move in on somebody that they decided to have a little you know, interaction with. And I got missed every time for about 40 minutes until I started going into more of the action where the music was. And I would, you know, shuff up to my friends and snuggle up to them. And, but just, I was... I had sunglasses on and I had a baseball cap, which I don't own, and, but very plain-looking clothing. And, and, and I was just moving my body as if I was just being, the, I was in character, and no one recognized me. And it was really lonely, and it was really depressing, and I went home thoroughly depressed. That's the last time I went to a fancy <laughs> dress party, because we, they were, I wasn't being particularly engaging. I wasn't acting out in any way remarkable. And so I wasn't interesting enough to be bothered with. And we do this with people all the time. We do it with parts of ourselves. We're identified with the parts of ourselves which are remarkably, you know, the ones which make us feel good and proud and the ones which make us feel awful and ashamed. And and we don't even notice the rest of ourselves that's going on all the time, that's quietly efficient or that's generally relatively tidy or something ordinary. We miss most of it. And of course, we don't just comment in our minds about things. That commenting is the precursor to the activity. So we'll then say it out loud. You know, we'll have an opinion, a description, make up some story about something, and then we'll say it, or we'll act out of that in some way. We've described somebody as something, and then we behave to them as if that were the truth of them. It's 
nothing like the truth of them. It's a small piece of what we've perceived that we're now describing. This commentary, this um, particularly when it gets going, not the very low-key sort of gentle babbling that doesn't have a lot of juice to it, but the stuff that we is louder, that is, um, we believe in more, that we, we do with more energy, we, we get preoccupied with. And some of those we actually repeat over and over and over. We find ourselves in loops with them or really entangled with certain you know, scenarios or relationships, stories. For the good, sometimes scheming and, and uh, hoping and creating, or the opposite, resisting, you know, worrying, all those negative things we do. All of that activity, all of that mental activity, is not accepting. We don't mean accepting, when we use this word of accepting, it isn't, ex- it isn't as simple as it sounds. We think we understand what the word accepting is. Yes, I accept that. But actually, there's a whole depth to this that I want to explore more. When we are, even in the positive, taking a situation and making much of it and chasing onto it or hanging onto it or bemoaning it when it's gone, we're not accepting it for what it really is. We're not even seeing it for what it really is. We're having a very narrow kind of attached version of relationship with it, which isn't even a true relationship. It's not a full one. And certainly when it's unpleasant or difficult, something's happening that's difficult, we are resisting it. We're scared of it or irritated by it or we're in some way, trying to even explain it away. If we can't get rid of it, we're trying to justify it or blame it or blame ourselves. Or All of this, it's more obvious when it's a negative response, is just non-accepting. Yes, but. <laughs> Maybe we're saying, yes, I know it's like this, but I don't want it to be like this. Or how could we modify it? How could I make it different? This is having a relationship with the unfolding of life that's a conflictive relationship. It's with some agenda or other. It isn't quite okay as it is. I need more of it or less of it or something about it. We're busy, busy, busy in all of these ways and this is non-accepting and this is exhausting. And this is relatively futile, unfortunately, because it doesn't... It isn't that it, it doesn't improve things, it makes it worse because it's, it tires us out, spinning wheels, trying to achieve some outcome, which oftentimes is impossible. It's actually crazy what we're doing a lot of the time. But it's so normal that we have no idea we're doing it. We get to see this sitting in the quiet. More and more this is revealed. We make mountains out of molehills. We make stories where there's no story. We make dramas where they're not dramas. We make problems where they're not problems. We're causing ourselves so much stress. We're in the way. So, accepting, however, well, it's neither getting something, it's not like I want to get somewhere with this acceptance. I want to become a different person. It's not anything we can grab or create. It's not a building or a making. But it's not what we often might think, which is a kind of resigned giving into, you know, like putting up with or um, a sort of collapsing oh, I better accept this, then there's nothing I can do. When we finally realize there's nothing we can do about something, we can say, okay, I accept it. But that's in a kind of resigned collapse. It's aversive still, it's just that we've lost the will to do anything about it anymore. 
but it isn't really accepting either. That's not what it means by acceptance. It's not becoming a doormat and then being tromped on by, you know, the armies of Mara. It's, we think of, so often we think in our sort of common use of this word, it's sort of weak or passive, you know, collapsing. That's not what we mean at all, at all. True acceptance is way more subtle and way more profound and way more essential in liberation than that. It's um, it's less than that. This, this is what makes this, I love this, about the practice. It gets increasingly um, sort of, uh, well, subtle and then ethereal almost. It isn't like that there is stuff to do or some way to be or to become. It's not, it's, it's really a disintegrating rather than a, a creating. Accepting is way less than we normally would think it is. It's way more quiet. It's right in the, in the heart of all of, of this whole journey of awakening. It's the heart of our practice. It's the heart of the, the process of awakening. It's, an, it's a, an increasing opening. You hear it, you hear the instructions, you know, when James was describing both in his talk last night and in his instructions today, just be with your experience, just as it is, adding nothing. We are instructed in this way over and over. You've, many of you practiced for many, many, many years. And we know the instruction one of the ways I describe mindfulness is by putting a period in after the experience. You have an experience, period. We don't have to then add, and I like it, and I want it, and I want more of it, and it means I'm doing well. It's just an experience, period. This is allowing. It's like, I can allow this to be as it is without having to turn it into drama, a story, a version of reality that's being explained. One of the words I like for um, accepting, I think was my favorite word, is accommodating. It's something we actually do is to accommodate. I like it because I can feel myself accommodating something. It's like allowing the movement of something to come in. You know, like you're in a crowded room and there's, or an elevator. Take an elevator. There's a lot of you in the elevator and yet one more person with a buggy comes in. And we all have to make space. We have to sort of back up and allow and be more spacious. That's what it's like. Make room for, to accommodate, make room for or space for, to adjust to. So there's a receptivity in it. It's not like I'm standing here and this is my territory and you're going to have to adjust to that. It's this giving, giving responsive, it's fluid. But it also means to be able to accommodate to something, you have to notice it, you have to care about it, you have to realize what's going on with it in order to be able to accommodate it. If you don't notice it, you'll never accommodate it. You know when people are oblivious, those heedless people out there who don't do retreats, they don't notice you, you know, and you have to really honk loudly sometimes to say, excuse me, but I'm here. So it's a respect, it's a, it takes observation and uh, interest and consideration. It's also, as well as accommodating, it isn't like a one-time accommodation, okay, I can now adjust. It's once whatever this is now arising, whatever the experiences you're accommodating to or you're accepting, it's then a continued thing often because sometimes the things which are arising don't just whistle right by and they're gone. They may stick around for a while. And so it's then holding it. And that's another word I really like for accepting because there's, an, there's a caring and an active, some people go so far as to say embracing. Sometimes embracing is a bit of a, high bar. But we can hold. We can hold way more than we think we can hold. When it's difficult, a word that I've used, and I've used this more in context of uh, thinking about 
compassion. But this is very, in the very close relative of compassion. Is I can stomach it. When something's really unpleasant, we, you know, the, the, what, to take something in that's really unpleasant, we don't want to. The, the physical reflux is to eject it. But when we are actually capable, we can hold things in more than we would normally want to and eject them, we can actually stomach it. So somehow allowing has part of that. Accommodating, embracing, holding, handling, stomaching. And that's not so easy. Spontaneously, we don't want to. We don't like a lot of things. Learning to be with, not just to be with, but to be at peace with. Not just tolerate, okay, at arm's length, but actually really, really, really be with. This is the meaning of the whole word metta, friendliness. When we're befriending some situation, we're really with it. We're really holding it. We're allowing it to be. We're allowing our friend to be whatever it is they are, whatever they're going through, whatever ups and downs, when we're really a friend, we have space for all of that. So it's, it's actually another, another word for this would be meta or friendliness. You know, one of the classic, um, the first classic phrase in the meta uh, phrases, blessings, is uh, free from enmity meaning being friendly. Enmity is, you know, pushing it away. Not, I can't, I don't, I don't definitely want to deal with that. Free completely from that feeling is friendly. It's accommodating. It's receiving, allowing. So how do we do it? How do we grow this capacity? It comes along with these other things that we practice that you have, you know, no doubt heard. Mindfulness itself, as I already said, mindfulness realizes what's happening, knows what's going on, period. Bare attention, you sometimes have heard that word. Attending to, but barely, no clothes, no layers, no extra. It's also being able to perceive the difference between what's happening and what you're contributing. So I can say this to you, but until you can perceive that there are two things going on, there's what's happening and what you're doing with it, how you're relating to it. What's your spin here? And until we can see what we're contributing to the situation, we aren't going to be able to modify that. That part is what we don't notice. So really, as we, as we practice, even though our instructions begin with being aware of the body, being aware of the breathing, being aware of sounds, we begin there. But that's just the beginning to collect our attention because it's easy for us to notice what's happening. That's what we do all the time. What we don't notice and what we have to learn is how am I with it? And that is a whole huge other level of exploration of discovery of placing our attention and of that when we place our attention with this is going on this sound is going on this event is happening this sensation is occurring and how am i with it that's where it gets really meaningful that's really the point of what we're doing because we are the ones causing the stress it's my relationship to what's happening that's the stress, not what's happening. Untrained, in the terms of the Buddha meaning a trained mind, untrained, we have no interest even in how we are with what's happening. We're just interested in what's happening. And when it's good and when it's up, we are really happy. And when it's not, we're bummed. Without knowing anything else, we are totally at the mercy of the rise and fall of life. And when it's going well and we're blessed by circumstance, hey, it's easy. And when it's a drag and things are going wrong, 
difficult, we're miserable. That's not necessary. That's the brilliance of the Buddha's teaching, the basic teaching. It's not about that. It's about how you are. How well can you accommodate this rising and falling? When we can know we're going up, know it's lovely, enjoy it, period. Not have to have more, define ourselves because it's good, scheme, be proud, be excited, just enjoy it. Knowing things are going to change. And it goes up and it comes down. And when it goes down, it can go down. This is hard. I hear um, Arjun Sumedho's voice in my mind. I'll never forget when I heard him say this. Arjun Sumedho is no longer teaching, but many of you know who he is. Uh, He had a lisp. He has a lisp. And with his lisp, he said, once I heard him say, Samsara sucks. <laughs> and it does sometimes. I mean, all of Samsara sucks, but life sucks sometimes. When we're able to accommodate it, it's just like, it's, this is a pain. This is such a pain. This is hard. What a drag is this? Period. It doesn't mean, oh no, I'm so stupid. I da 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 da. It doesn't have to mean the dread of what will come next or where this is about to lead me or I'm really in a bad way now here, things are going wrong now. You know how we build expectations and definitions? Another thing that helps us to learn this capacity, grow this capacity, live this accepting way, is as through practicing, all this is through practicing, is in your experience, there's what happens, there's how you are with it, and there's how does that feel. And when you know you're struggling with, or dramatizing, or dreading, or judging, or scheming, how does that feel? And it's from how it feels that we learn. We don't learn by words. We don't learn by other people saying things. We learn because it feels how it feels. And when we are adding a bunch of judgments to a situation, on top of a situation, making it bigger and oftentimes worse, that doesn't feel good. It feels exhausting. We feel like we're pushing against something or we're shrinking from something or fed up about or carrying a heavy burden. How do you feel yourself? Some people feel clutching. You know, some people feel wincing. You don't have to have the words for it, but we know we need to learn how it feels when we're adding unnecessary, whatever it is, and not accepting what's happening. It's the knowing how that feels, and then we're not, when we're not doing that, when we are accepting, when we are in a state of going like, this, isn't, this is a drag, period. That feels relatively simple. That feels relatively quiet. That feels relatively comfortable compared to, oh, and this means so-and-so, and what am I going to do, and whining and defining... <laughs> doesn't feel so good. It's heavy. It's hard. We need to be able to feel it. Feel the stress, the dukkha. Feel the absence of it. Tune into the different moments. Some moments are lighter, more spacious, more quiet. Some are more churning, more charged. Feel the difference. Know them, see them, but feel them. You're learning by your feeling. then we'll feel it and then we'll be able to perceive because that's what we're doing as the minds get quiet. A whole unfolding of a process, not just a moment, but we'll see how this leads to this leads to this. When I have an experience like that and then I add this whole commentary and then it makes me feel like this and then I see that then the next thought is like this and then I have an urge to do that, we see a whole unfolding.
And we don't need to teach ourselves to be wise. We know when that's useful, when that's wholesome, when that's not. What we all need to do is see it. Be present enough to observe that. And we can't help but observe it. If you're present and you're looking inside at what's going on, you can't but see it. We also need, with this allowing, we need, we need kindness to be able to see how neurotic we are and how busy we are wrapping things up in these long stories. So this takes gumption, as Bhantikunaratana says, to be willing to be with your, your stuff and see how much of it there is, how much all day long you're churning your wheels, trying to make it better by complaining about it or blaming somebody. Or to be able to face yourself and see your process and see the stress that you're causing yourself takes some gutsiness, but it also takes a lot of kindness. We're all doing it. It's not you who's doing it. It's your little mind trying to make you happy. It's so sweet and it's so pathetic. (laughs) One of the reasons why it's not so easy to do this, particularly when it's accepting what we don't want to accept, what we, you know, or quickly will say, that's completely unacceptable. No way. I can't accept that. It's the difficult things, the unpleasant thing, pain. You know, a diagnosis of something, bad news. You know, heartbreaks, the losses. The plain, you know, sadnesses of the world. Our wounds. And then our weirdnesses and our, you know, warts. Our unpleasant emotions, you know, when we get rattled, it's not so easy to accept ourselves getting rattled or being mean, you know, or somebody else being mean. How do we, how do we bring acceptance into the situations which are, on the surface of it, absolutely unacceptable? Well, this is really important. First of all, we know we can't make we can't make life suit us. We try all day long, and actually, we can't make it suit us. It's going to be what it's going to be. So we need to be realistic. The trouble, one small trouble, one main, main, main reason that we have so much trouble is that we can help somewhat by our normal strategizing. We can be more comfortable if we put on a coat and it's raining. We can be happier by having chocolate after lunch. It feels good. We can do little things to make ourselves feel a little bit better. It's not that it's completely redundant to do it. It, It's effective. But it kids us, it fools us. It fools us into thinking that strategy, if you just try a little bit harder, you'll be able to do it better with more things. The big things. If you really try, you won't just get chocolate after lunch if you've planned and brought your chocolate with you. So you've now got it all organized. There's so much you cannot get all organized and you can't have chocolate after but we don't, we, we're convinced because we know that little strategy does work to a degree, we, we depend on it. And it lets us down because it can only work so far. So then when things are beyond its scope, then what do we do? We just try all the more. And that's not skillful. Life is unpredictable. We are going to get older. We're going to need hearing aids and spectacles and microphones. (laughs) There's nothing we can do about those things, but accept them. When it's difficult, we usually have a version of all the different kinds of aversion with all of our explanations and so on. We also really think that we know better 
and it should be this way and I should be this way and you shouldn't have done it that way and it shouldn't be like this at this time of year. We just should. We really, it's extraordinarily arrogant, but we think that we know better. We play God a lot. So we should like crazy. That's not accepting. We dread, you know, we anticipate. All of this is non-accepting and all of this is what the Buddha called adding the second dart. There's the first dart of whatever's difficult and our second dart, which is the complaining about it or the dreading or the shoulding or all the rest of it, blaming. Another reason why it's hard to accept even the pleasant things the pleasant things trigger our greed. They trigger our desiring. They trigger our pride. They trigger, they, they kid us to think that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be great. Who said it was supposed to be great? We just like it. We want it. But it isn't supposed to be that way. It's only like that sometimes. We get so caught in wanting it teacher, a lot of you know, said, uh, there's nothing like a good sitting, this is to retreatants, to you, nothing like a good sitting to ruin your whole day. Because <laughs> you think, I've got it finally, this is how it's supposed to be. Great. And then you'll spend the rest of your day, or week, trying to, I once met somebody, when I was first teaching, you know, 10 years ago or something, I met someone, somebody who, a man who'd sat a retreat as a young man, 25 years prior, and he'd had an extraordinary experience, some great spiritual experience. And he had spent the next 25 years going to different teachers and different kinds of practices and all over the place, and none of them measured up to his first experience. So he was rejecting, 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 one after another after another. He had never, ever been able to develop a satisfying spiritual practice because he had such a great experience the first time. And finally he was there on this retreat with me and he told me this and, and uh, I don't know if he found that satisfying either but I just, what a, that's nothing like a good experience to ruin your whole spiritual life. <laughs> that's the trouble with good things. That's why it's hard to allow them. He couldn't accept that it was lovely, period. He was looking for more and more. Where is that? Validation of that. That's, that's our difficulty. We can't accept even the pleasant things easily. And as I said, you know, when things are unpleasant and happen to us, one of the things we do so easily is identify with them and we make it about me. James and his story of his keys in the trunk. It isn't about trees in the trunk and mindfulness. The point of his story is, was that James? Was that about James? That mindless moment of leaving his keys in the trunk? Because that's where we tend to go with it. Or, you know, I'm supposed to be a teacher, blah, blah, blah. I had people come to see me today. We all did. You all came and visited with us. Some of you came and visited with us. Several people said, I haven't got any, nothing dramatic happened. Because we define ourselves by something, you know, we so easily do. If something's juicy, then got something important to tell the teacher, then we have some good practice to report and so on. We, we, uh, we get so hooked. And the third reason that it's hard to do this practice in general, but this part of it, this accepting what's going on, is simply that we've done it this other way by adding on and making an agenda all of our conscious lives. And this is a new program. It's a different way. And it's a much, much lesser way in a way. It's way more profoundly effective, but we're doing way less. We're going, oh, ah, period. And we all deeply believe we're supposed to do something about something. And this is not that. It's being with. Like when you're with a friend, they're having a conversation with you, they're telling you something that's gone on, when you're the friend, you're not doing something about them and fixing them and advising them. and You're going, oh, oh, I see, yeah. 
And sometimes we feel maybe we're not doing enough when we're being with our friends, but you know what it's like when you're the one who's sharing something and your friend is like right with you with nothing to say. And you're so grateful. Thank you for just giving. I wanted to be seen. I wanted you to just care for me. I don't need advice. We want to be met like that by being allowed to be who we are. But we, we're not good at doing that. We are overdoing all the time, overreaching, overdoing. We believe more is better. And so it's a, it's a letting go of the, of the old way of adding and describing. It's quieter, it's less. And the way we can do less is to see the more is to see the old way of adding and feel it. If we don't learn these skills, if we can't really accept fully, allow, respect, hold, accommodate what's going on, period, the cost is very high. The energy that we expend is, is endless. We are exhausted. We are tight, we are stressed, we're miserable. When we can, when we can stop all the extra, all the struggling, it's easy. It's nothing special. It's free from the extra. That's what freedom is. This is what freedom is. Freedom from doing all the doing over-trying. Comparing good, bad, more, less, right, wrong, enough, not enough, never enough, busy, busy. Truth is what's happening. The Dharma is what's happening. By accepting, we're actually being with the Dharma. This is what's happening. Period. Not resignedly, but actually with some honor. This is what's going on. Ah, I can let this in. I can let this be what it is. And we discover all kinds of all kinds of richness in experience that we previously were like, nope, don't want to deal with that, got to get over that quickly. There's so much richness in in any moment. And even when it's pain, for instance, you're sitting here and it's painful. And you're scheming how to, you know, should you move yet? And what about this? And what will it mean for you in the future and your next retreats and how long? And then when that drops away and you can say, this is... This is a painful knee. And there's space for it in you. And you can say, I can make space for this. It gets interesting. We discover things. We we see change happen. We learn big principles. When we get out of the way, our little whining. I met somebody on a retreat too in my early, one of the very first, probably the first retreat I ever taught. And uh, she, I first met her, I didn't know her at all, and she came to say that her husband had just before she came on the retreat, relatively before she came on the retreat, been diagnosed with some really serious disease. And uh, she came anyway because she was a regular retreatant and she was full of fear about what this might mean and full of potential grief for perhaps losing him. This is a serious disease. And, uh, and full of struggle with it until we talked about it. And when she talked about it, she was able to go like, I'm just scared and I'm already grieving. And just being able to say and accept that's what was going on, she was able to, to accommodate it. And then her fear for him and for what her life might be if she weren't with him and 
and her grief perhaps for perhaps losing the life she had and the one she loved were then to her sweet. They were actually the expression of love, you know, of connection, of sensitivity. There was something sweet and lovely about it, even though this was shockingly awful news. Being able to accommodate it had a sweetness. It wasn't just sweet, but it wasn't the enemy anymore. And she was, she had space for it now. It's a sweet relief. The other thing is, as we discover our ability to allow, accept, embrace, accommodate the rise and the fall, the ups, the downs, the dramas, they're less loud. They move through and we find ourselves more open rather than preoccupied with the chasing and the avoiding. And we discover that there's so much more that we've missed because normally we're you know, caught with the ups and the downs. We did rediscover, and most of you, we've all been retreatants so many times. You know how you start like gazing at the little tiny things that you completely ignored before. You know, you can see people in retreat just like staring at some dewdrop or, you know, snowflake or ripple on a pond or whatever it is, a little tiny seed. Completely insignificant to normal people in life but full of exquisiteness and subtlety. and It was always there. We just were not available. So this accepting includes this. We, we open up to, all, to way more. Beautiful. And as that whole process takes root in us, we become quieter. We see the, the uh, uselessness of that constant babble and that whining and the scheming. We see not just the uselessness, we see the cost. We see the ineffectiveness. And it no longer then is so convincing. And so we don't give it so much attention and so it subsides. And so we become peaceful and quieter and softer and our eyes become softer. We're not vigilant, we're not chasing after things and worrying about things. Our, even our eyes become softer. Faces become softer. You know when you go home after a retreat you look five years younger because your wrinkles aren't there because you haven't had an agenda running hour after hour. Our gaze becomes kinder both of ourselves and our inner stuff and our outside around us. New eyes, new view. We start to dance with life instead of to impose our will on life and struggle against what happens, wishing it were different. We begin to be able to be with it all. And in this, even though it's quiet and it's softer and it's less doing, it's utterly profound. Because this is what freedom is about. It's freedom from all of that. Freedom is quiet. Freedom is ordinary. It's peaceful. It's simple. It's available. Help yourself, as Thich Han says. And it isn't just profound and, and freedom for you. Everyone else gets to benefit from being free from all of your neurosis. That's the thing. <laughs> Which you are putting out all over everybody else. And when there's less of it, then there's less of it for everyone else to have to cope with. So as we understand what we're doing in practice, we're letting go of all the inappropriate whining and defining. 
I'm becoming less. That's why it's called lightning, enlightenment, lightening up. Not so entertained by drama, not so stimulated. not dominated by life, but accommodating life. We go from being the victims of life to being more masters of life. Welcoming life, rather than being pushed around and dragged up and down by it. So we become able increasingly to rest in allowing, rest in an accepting, rest with a heart that's an accommodating heart, that's spacious, flexible, friendly. And this is how we get transformed, moving from stories and assumptions and descriptions and judgments to peacefulness, ease, from opinions and your versions of reality to dharma, the truth, the real truth, the big truths, what's really there, pure. From anxiety to serenity, from prison to freedom, from sorrow to joy, from me to us to life, from samsara to nirvana. and take refuge in life, not from life. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.